Good morning. This morning we'll be continuing the story of David as we find it in 1 Samuel, thinking of the wilderness years that David encountered for approximately 10 years of his life or so. But as we come, let us prepare and present ourselves before God as we wait on his word. Let us pray. Father, again we come before you, asking for you to speak to us, to speak clearly that we may understand and to know that you are our God. Teach us and train us in your way. And we ask that we will leave here, not only knowing that we have met with you, but fixed on how you desire us to change our lives. To reflect that of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. A word came into use in the English language, oh it must have been about three years ago, that if you ever had a problem and you needed to get it sorted, you would Google it. For I'm sure many of you will understand, Google is the number one search engine used whenever you're browsing the internet. And so I thought for today, I would Google what it meant, the wilderness years. It's something I had heard about, I'm sure something you're familiar with, and I got uh, the page that returned to me, and it said, well, it gave me three names to start off with, and if I was to ask you what do Winston Churchill, Tony Blair, and Kylie Minogue have in common, the answer will be they all have had wilderness years. If anybody wants to tell me Winston Churchill's or Tony Blair's, please feel free, Kylie Minogue, um, they told me a little bit more about But the wilderness years, the wilderness years is a term that describes a time in someone's life when they have faded from public view or they have lost their main focus and their direction and so they go into obscurity. The wilderness years. I suppose out of them all I did know a little bit about Kylie Minogue having watched her whenever she first appeared in Neighbours and how after sometime in the mid-1990s she stopped creating music. She went away for five years and there was questions about what was happening and she did have health scares but she came back and she herself said that she had come out of her wilderness years where she was lost, where she didn't know where she was going or what was happening. The wilderness years. David, as already has been said this morning, had his wilderness years. He didn't know where he was going, the life that he once knew, the privilege that he once had having flipped upside down, and here he was on the run, a fugitive, someone who has been hunted down. But he was also physical in that he was in the wilderness. Yes, he was a shepherd boy who would have fought the lion and the bear, but the wilderness was not his natural terrain. He was at home in the pasture, looking after the flock or the herd or whatever he was looking after. But here he was in the wilderness. And here he was as a Robin Hood. Verse 2 of chapter 22, we are told that those, he was attracting people who were in distress or in debt or who were discontented. Here he was, a fugitive himself, and gathering these men around him, 600 or so coming to him because they were outcasts as well. And this is the scene for David in his wilderness years. Let's track the story a little. 
Let's move from where you left last week, thinking of David and Jonathan and the relationship there. And at the end of chapter 20, David and Jonathan go in peace. They go their separate way. Jonathan went back to town and then David left. And right at the start of chapter 21, we are told that David went to Nob. And he goes there and meets with the priest. And the priest is worried, concerned that David is on his own. And here we see the start, or perhaps even the continuation in what has been subtle beforehand. But now, really, David is telling lies to a priest to try and cover his own way. Because the priest says, no one is with you. What do you want? And David answered, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. David's coming, looking something. He has men gathering, waiting to meet with him. And he needs to provide for them. And what does he do? He takes the consecrated bread and the sword uh, that was Goliath's and he takes it for his own benefit, misleading the priest and the priest Judy gives. But there is someone loyal to Saul and they inform Saul that David is there and has worked with this priest and this priest has worked and is friends with David, not knowing that it is all a trick and a lie that David has played. But we'll think of that in a moment whenever we see Saul's reaction. But we move on in the passage that David then goes from Nob and goes to Gath. Of all places to go to. If we were in a Sunday school group now I would say, does Gath sound familiar? Two weeks ago we were thinking of David and Goliath. Goliath of Gath. Here was David. X number of years later walking into the home of this champion That's how he was described in the passage, this champion who was a a fighter from his youth, walking in, expecting what? Expecting to be taken in because he's an enemy of Saul as well. But he hears something. He hears that the people saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The people haven't forgotten. They know who David is. They know that David was that little boy who killed their champion. And so what does he do? David feigns insanity. He plays the fool. The king says he's enough fools around him and he doesn't need any more presented to him. And so David is passed through and led on. The people start to take pity on David. But this is the depths he has gone to to ensure that he will be kept safe and that he will continue. Right at the start of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Here, his family reunite with him. They come and they find him and they see what is going on. And David has so much concern for them that he goes with them to Mizpah. Mizpah, he goes to try and secure safety for them with the king of Moab. He wants them there. He wants them safe. He doesn't want any harm done to them. And so the spotlight is shifting off David and his own selfish way and what he wants and is starting to think again of what his family are like and how they should be protected. And then David gets the word. The Philistines are back. And they're coming and they come to Keliah. And David goes and successfully defeats the Philistines. Why is this little story here? That little chunk of scripture is there. I believe, and as I've been reading, to show that David was not against Saul. 
Charges would come later to David that he took the throne in an underhand way. But here was David fighting for the kingdom. Saul was still in control. Saul was still head of the army. And here was David fighting the armies of Israel. David still believed in Israel. And David still believed Saul as God's anointed. In chapter 22 we come to a but. Well, in the passage it's a now, but in the narrative it's a but. Saul finds out about David. Saul is pursuing David as far as he can go. And he finds out from this source that he has had in Nob about how the priest has helped David. And Saul is enraged and he goes and he questions And the end is he commands that all the priests should be killed. These priests are killed for the sake of David because Saul believes they are in league with David. This is a a picture of how Saul has gone. As the story will continue later in 1 Samuel, we will see the depths that Saul goes to. But here is the taste of it. Not only is he out to get David, but anyone who is with him and anyone who is working with him, he tries to kill He gets rid of, he gets them out of the story. All because Saul wants to get rid of one man. Saul catches up with David. We don't know how close, but it's within the vicinity of where David is running. But Saul gets the word that, yes, once again, the Philistines are back. And so Saul breaks off his pursuit and he goes and fights the Philistines. And David gets to breathe Easy, And David goes to En Gedi. En Gedi is on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's a mountainous region. It's full of caves. It means spring of the young goat. And that's where David and his men camp. That is where they hide out. That is where they try and survive for this little bit of time when Saul is off fighting the Philistines. And this is where our passage comes in 1 Samuel 24. Let me remind you that Saul is still in control. Saul is still the king. Saul is still the one on the throne. And he is leading the army. But he also still has those informants throughout the country. And so he knows what is going on. So he goes back pursuing David into the end game. We presume that it is a successful campaign, so much so that Saul is ready to to get back onto this fight against David. He's not going to go back to his throne and sit and lick his wounds, but he's ready to go again. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Saul chooses 3,000 men, 3,000 hand-chosen warriors of Israel to go after David and his 600. Five to one, that's not bad. Saul, why could he not do it? Saul, with all this resources, with all this might that he had, went to the Engedi, and he still couldn't get David. Unfortunately, Saul, in the story, and it is recorded there, has to do the most human of calls of nature. He needs to go to the toilet. And it just so happens that in the caves, as he goes in the heat of the day, he walks into, by chance, walks into this cave that David and his men are in, 
certainly not by chance. God has it all in his plan for the rest of this story. Saul goes in, out of the sun. He is thankful for the coolness of this cave and he takes a moment and David's men see him. This cave is like midnight. This cave is one that will go on into the mountainside. And David's men are in the centre of it, round the walls. When they hear someone coming, they hush. It is cool, it is dark. Saul may go in a few feet, but he goes alone. No one really wants to see the king whenever he has to go to the toilet, so his guard remains outside. Scripture doesn't say this, but this is traditionally what would have been thought of within the royal court. And he went into the cave from sunlight to darkness not seeing anything and David's men are there this is it this is the chance it is one Saul not three thousand but one here on his own he's sitting down his back to them all it would take would be one sword in the back of the neck and he's gone and David goes forward can you imagine it it would be a great movie The music is stirring. The steps go forward little bit by little bit. David, dagger in hand, what's he going to do? And then he just cuts his coat. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. A simple little tear. But how silent it must have been. How simple it must have been for Saul not to hear it. And David goes back to his men and Saul goes on his way. And David's men can't believe it. They think... What's going on? Why didn't you kill him? Here he was in your hands and you didn't kill him. Did the Lord not say that he will give you your enemies? Scripture doesn't record that the Lord said to David, I will give you your enemies. Scripture does record that the Lord said he would give the Philistines into the hands of David. Were these men just egging David on to finish this wilderness trek that they were having? Or maybe it did actually happen, but we don't have a record of it, that the Lord did say he would give the enemies into David's hands. But they are furious, and David says no. He strongly says no, because he realizes that the same prophet that anointed him to be the future king of Israel was the same prophet under God's direction who anointed Saul as king. I will not lay a finger on the Lord's anointed David in his wilderness years. Yes, at the start, whenever we looked at what happened with the priest in Nob and as he went and fought the Philistines, we realized that David was possibly far from the Lord. He was not considering, but whenever it came to fight, David consulted with the Lord. Whenever he consulted with a prophet, it was said, Go and go in the Lord. David may not have had a close relationship at times with God, but when it came to it, he was brought back into the presence of God so that he would be the true anointed king that God wanted for his people. He still recognizes God's supreme authority on everything, even a king who had fallen, who had slipped, and who was no longer recognized as suitable for that task. David's life in the wilderness, running from one place to the next, being pursued by his enemy, 
but recognising the hand of God in everything that he did. Psalm 57 is accredited to this period in David's life whenever he goes and hides and seeks refuge in the caves. And this psalm says that God is his refuge. It is God who David will find his hope and his strength in, his protection. It is in God that David will live and he will praise him for how he has been delivered from the hands of his enemies. This is David's response when David gets his focus back on where God is right there with him. He will praise God for what he has to go through because it is God who will see him through and it is God who will be his refuge. So the excitement's over in chapter 24. The excitement of what we thought was going to be a dagger in the back turns out just to be a bit of cloth in the hand. And then David also exits the cave. David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord the king. The language, the language in this speech, which is probably one of those speeches that is a once in a lifetime opportunity. David's men are hearing it. Saul is hearing it. Saul's men are hearing it. David uses the language of king and father, again showing his respect and understanding that Saul is God's anointed, but also for the love and affection that he once knew with Saul. And David questions Saul's motives and guidance and challenges Saul. Who are you listening to? What men are feeding you this information? Have you taken your eyes off God? Because if David was honest, he had, but yet he had brought them back and was brought back into that precious relationship with his heavenly father. He questions Saul's motives. He says, I am not someone you should be afraid of. I am not the one who is guilty, but yet you are pursuing me as if I am. You are still my king, and to prove it, here is part of your robe. And Saul would have known fine rightly that in that cave, in the darkness, Saul would not have known what was coming. And all it was, was a bit of cloth. In these times, a bit of cloth was a, it was proof. So if you killed someone, you took a bit of their robe with them and you, you proved that you had it. It was proof that you had the authority to show that you were in control, that you had conquered whoever you were conquering. But David uses it to show no Saul. This is how close your life came to be ended. This is the mercy that I have because you are God's anointed. And he calls God as the judge. Man isn't going to judge Saul and David and how they have done things right and done things wrong. How they have treated each other and how they've thought of each other. But it will be God. And David calls on God to be that judge. And what does Saul do? Well, Saul responds in a very surprising way. Has David been such an eloquent speaker that Saul's heart has melted? That Saul now remembers the days when he enjoyed with David in his court as David made that sweet music to him to calm him down? David is referred to by Saul. Is that David, my son? Is that your voice? Listen to Saul's language. This is how we know his heart has softened. You are my son. He hasn't been called this since 1 Samuel 20 and 22. David, my son, the relationship that these two once knew. But Saul knows he is a beaten man. 
Saul knows that he is no longer God's chosen king. Yes, anointed and still king. But there is someone coming who is not of the family of Saul. And he knows it will be David. For in verse 20 he says that David, and he recognizes that David will be the king. And the kingdom will be established in his family. Then we have one of those little curious things that just pop out at us from scripture. After they have done this, so David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The oath, Saul says, and I swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Saul wants his family protected and David swears that oath, possibly more so because of his relationship and friendship love that he has with Jonathan. But the oath is made with future dealings with Saul's house and the both go their separate way. David's wilderness years in this story that we read has its ups and it has its downs. It is physical and it is personal. David is flipped upside down in a life that he doesn't know or recognize. David is places he doesn't know or recognize and has to live and fend for himself. This story shows that even the greatest of biblical characters face difficulties and hit rock bottom times in life. And when we read the story, what do we see? We see David responding with full human emotion, with anger, with lies, trying to do it his own way. If we were to look in a mirror, Would we see any different? As we think of how we respond to times that come in our lives and upset us. That cause us to hit rock bottom. Where we are in distress. Even Christ himself in Luke 22 is in distress. He knows that Calvary is before him. That he will have to bear the punishment of our sins on that cross. He knows the agony, both physical and spiritual, that it will be. And he says, my father, if there is another way, let this cup pass over. But if not, your will be done. The agony of Christ, knowing what has to happen, but yet fully trusting in his father. By nature, our lives will face distress. It may be here right now where you and your home and your family or in your workplace are facing things that are upsetting you and that are disturbing your life. Not only is it a physical, but you're also feeling the spiritual attack of the evil one. Or they will come. They will come in the days ahead or we have known them from time past. Take the example of David. Keep God in the picture and don't remove him from it. David removed God at certain parts in his life. But yet when he came back, when he was drawn back into the presence of God for his guidance, David knew the blessing, the rich blessing of that. Now it didn't automatically solve his problems, but what it did was give him confidence in the one who has the future in his hands. Joseph Scriven penned fantastic words 
in the first verse of what a friend we have in Jesus, where it says, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What are we carrying? What is the distress in our lives that we are not giving up to God and letting him do what he does best? Care, love, and protect us. What are we carrying that we need to lay down at his feet and say, I surrender all because it will not be of me, but it will be of you. In the book of James, at the start of it, (coughs) verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says these times will come, probably because he has known them himself. They will come, but he says, consider them pure joy. We thought the last time I was here and spoke that how did people react, and how did David react, and his brothers react, and it was the, why me? You know, not again, why are they picking on me? Why, why, and why? Is that how we think about when things come our way? Why? Why me, God? Why not someone else? Look at what I've done. Why me? Yes. We know the anger of David in the Psalms where he questioned God. But whenever we start blaming God, we are not considering a pure joy to know that there is something greater through this at the end because we are told that we must face them with joy because the testing of our faith develops perseverance. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to keep going with him through his son by the power of his spirit, keeping going, persevering on to the end when we will receive that crown of righteousness as our prize because he wants us to be mature and he wants us to be complete not lacking anything. He wants us to be his people. He wants us to to be open to him working in our lives so that we will be the reflection of Christ in this world. Serving, helping, committing ourselves daily to him, loving him and glorifying him. Times of wilderness will come. But how will you and how will I survive? Will we fade away into obscurity? Or like David, will we look to the Lord and rely on his promises and his strength? We can survive our wilderness experiences by counting it all joy, just as David did. Because in Psalm 40 we read, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is our God. This is the God of David. This is my God. This is your God who no matter what we face in the trials of life will take us and set us firm on a solid foundation 
his Son, Jesus Christ, who will present us before our Father in heaven as acceptable in his sight. Take encouragement. Take the challenge that we will face it with joy as David did when these things come our way that upset the little boats that we have on this great ocean of life because our Father has us in his hands. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what we read in your word and how at times we don't understand why it's there but yet when we look at it more closely we can see your love, your power and your grace and your mercy in it. And for these passages, these stories of David that may be familiar to us, help us not to lose the sight of what you were doing in this man who would be credited to being a man after your own heart. For us today, break into our lives and challenge us that we will depend on you and you only, not on the comforts of this world, but on you. That we will look to you and not leave you out of our lives, that we will trust in you, trust in your leading and in your strength, so that we may bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray.